G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name's Matt Testoni and I'm all of the above and joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast are two people. We have Tom Heine, who is a conservation ecologist and Sasha Guggenheimer, who is a marine biologist and underwater photographer. And they're also the founders of Sun Butter Skincare, a reef-safe sunscreen. And what's cool about this episode is that it's actually broken into two parts. The first part, which will be episode 14, is talking to Tom all about seabirds. And the next episode will be with Sasha talking about, oh, you'll have to wait to the end of the show to find out. However, they're both going to be joining us for the whole of both episodes, which is awesome. So guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. Very excited to be here. No worries. So tell us what seabirds we're going to be talking about and why, when I asked you what secrets you wanted, you were like seabirds. Yeah, so I think uh, we'll chat predominantly about lesser noddies, white terns, and uh, white-tailed tropic birds. But I often get a bit carried away, so some others might, uh, might fly into the conversation. And um, I think seabirds are incredible. And I think they're like, they're always forgotten. We're so focused with the amazing underwater world that sometimes we don't look up and, and see what's flying above us and, and see these incredible lives and incredible importance that seabirds have on, um, on these beautiful marine ecosystems we enjoy. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about how you got into seabirds or what was your background? How did, how did the passion kind of come around, come about? So I've always loved the natural world. I grew up in the middle of England, about as far from the sea in England as you can be, and just loved all wildlife we lived in a rural place so we had like foxes and badgers and grass snakes and hedgehogs and that's really really cool and, and like really wild for England um, and all this stuff would come into our garden and I uh, yeah always loved nature couldn't choose if what I loved so I studied conservation ecology sort of I, I worked as a dive instructor and then I you know did a few other things and I was really looking to work in the conservation sector and this amazing job popped up managing a conservation island in the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean and I was like, that's fantastic. Like I'm a dive instructor. It's got the largest population of breeding hawksbill turtles in the Western Indian Ocean. Like, oh, I love all that. I reckon I could manage an island. And I applied. I sent this really honest uh, application letter that kind of uh, explained my shortcomings on their job criteria, but the strengths I could offer. And I was their third choice candidate. And eventually the first two dropped out because they hadn't read the job description or hadn't read the criteria. And um, yeah, I, I ended up there. And it turns out, it's a beautiful island, but it is really dominated by seabirds. I mean, it, it gets about 900 turtle nests a year, but it's got over 200,000 seabirds nesting on it. I went there ready to just really, you know, run this beautiful desert island with, with my wardens and the volunteers and stuff, and just sort of being just absolutely blown away by the birds that called it home. And when you're stuck on a desert island, you kind of start to lose a bit of your sanity. And just watching the lives of these seabirds play out was like my TV in the evening, because we'd only have four to six hours of electricity. So, you know, there's no chance of Netflix or anything like that. And uh, yeah, just watching them go about their lives really, really sparked a big passion. Yeah, it kind of has continued and grown ever since. Yeah, and I think that's like, uh, birds are one thing that you don't often associate because they are a sea creature, really. They don't live beneath the waves, like typically, but they are so important for the marine ecology. I I was just going to say, absolutely. And and so, um, so forgotten. And there was a really interesting... um, scientific paper published, I think it was Stanford University, looking at the importance of seabirds on the coral reefs. 
they showed emphatically that islands with healthy seabird populations have much healthier coral reefs because the seabirds obviously poop and they drop you know dead fish and occasionally the seabirds die and there's this huge boost of nutrients onto the coral reefs that islands without seabirds don't have so they're, they're super important players in the, in the health of that underwater world yeah and so the two or the few birds you mentioned we're going to have a chat about the lesser noddy and the white tern describe to someone who's never heard of a noddy or a tern because i didn't know a whole lot and i was like wow i i, I recognize this bird but i would have not have known it from the name Tell us a bit about their size and their color and their shape and that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So, um, so we'll start with Lesser Noddy. They're a pretty small seabird, maybe sort of like 20 to 25 centimeters in height. And they're this kind of like slate gray, dark chocolate brown color. They've got a little whitey gray, sort of almost a toupee cap. And they've got these really long um, slender beaks that are, that are a dark color as well. And they're, they're just that uniform, dark, slaty gray, brown color. And they've got you know, long, slender, skinny wings designed for sort of fluttering rather than traveling huge distances or, or gliding. They're, they're, they're like a turn, basically. So lots of fluttering, plunge down, grab something, a small fish or a squid from the surface, and, uh, and that's how they feed. And the white turns are a really similar body shape, really similar wing shape, apart from, as the name suggests, they're pure white. And uh, genetic studies actually show that the white turn is much closer related to the noddies, who, who unfortunately the noddies are called noddies because they're sort of referencing being a bit, bit daft or a bit stupid. Um, but yeah, white turns, pure white, absolutely gorgeous. And they've got these like really beautiful kind of indigo-y, dark blue, purple beaks. And they're, they're just absolutely beautiful, stunning, pure white birds. And so the, the white tern is found worldwide almost, I think, or is it, where is it found and what's the distribution of both yeah. species? Yeah, absolutely. White tern is, is pretty much worldwide through the tropics um, and lesser noddies you get predominantly Indo-Pacific, uh, but again, huge distribution. And I, I just read that they've got, they've got some pairs in the Caribbean as well um, because they're quite small about to see and, you know, hurricanes don't just pop up, but like a big weather system pops up. They can they can get dispersed pretty easily, predominantly predominantly through that tropical belt. Yeah, yeah, and the lesser noddy, I think they're on the WA coast, are they not? Off the WA coast, some of them. Yeah, we should. We, we saw the fish around the Lingaloo. Yeah, yeah. You get you get lots of species of of noddy as well. So you get lesser uh, black and brown for sure. You get uh, them around the top end, um, around PNG and then around the Pacific Islands. I've never seen one on the WA coastline, but I'd expect them definitely to be there, especially sort of that more tropical side. Actually, every now and then they turn up on the Ningaloo, don't they? And they make friends with the boats. They come and sit on the front of your boat for a rest. Yeah. 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 I, I was just asking because I read they get swept onto the WA coast occasionally through huge windstorms. And I was like, wow, that's pretty, pretty crazy how far they get swept because they're only like 100 grams. Like they weigh nothing, even though they're quite a large bird, really, as birds go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when they're tired, then they come and sit on your boat and they'll spend the whole day with you just hanging out on your boat, so knackered. And you can just sit there right next to them. They don't, they're not bothered. They're too tired. They're really happy for a safe little holding point where they're not too worried they're going to get eaten in the water and they can have a rest. So when they, you know, saying eaten in the water without, you know, when they're having a rest, I was reading too that they don't dive like a lot of seabirds that dive underwater to grab fish, do they? No, they're both um, they're both more like pluck it from the surface. They're they're quite dainty. You know, they might they might 
plunging like a you know a foot 30 centimeters or a little bit more but really they're just plucking off like really small bait fish or small squid from the surface they're um they're not like gannets or something that we would get more down here in victoria that just plunge you know to, to pretty good depths these guys will pluck from the surface or if there's a really dense food they'll be sat on the surface plucking away but they're not they're not birds they're not seabirds that sort of swim down great depths that's for sure yeah, they do fly pretty far, though, relative to, like, smaller birds, though, because I was reading that sailors have used them to navigate to shore because they return to their island every day. Is that true? They used to say that they use frigate birds as well. Those are beautiful big black birds that you've probably seen on, you know, David Attenborough documentaries with a red throat pouch. And because frigates can't rest on the water, they, they have really small feet and they find it really hard to take off from the water, that they will always return to land on something. So sailors, especially Polynesians, would often take a frigate bird with them and send it off. And if it came back to hover over the boat, then there's no land anywhere. I've not heard of them using, using white terns or less nollies, but I, I wouldn't put it past them. They're, um, they're definitely going to look for somewhere to roost rather than, rather than sit on the water, that's for sure. They're, they're definitely the species that you see as you get closer to islands. Yeah. yeah, they'll be kind of closer to that land mass. And then as you move away, you move offshore, you start to see other species of seabirds. And so this is one question I have to ask because I was doing a bit of research and I couldn't find anything. And everyone always asks this about seabirds. Are either of them monogamous? Yeah, actually, it's a great question because white terns are. Um, they're one of the few uh, seabirds in the whole world that are monogamous. And they form these beautiful pair bonds and they reinforce some of these incredible acrobatic flights. So like when you're in the tropics, you get close to these islands, you'll often see pairs of white terns. And especially it's the tropics, so it's you know, beautiful, beautiful blue sky. They're just magic as you see them fly over and like backlit by the sun. It, it really is like a photographer, bird photographer's like perfect shot. And so they'll make for life. And I've got a friend who's a really, ex he's a really eccentric researcher, bird enthusiast. And he, he lives on an island called Bird Island in the Seychelles. He tagged all the white terns on the island or a lot of them. And he reckons that if you see two white terns, sorry, if you see one white turn, then it's a, it's a parent out feeding or a, a sort of a, a young out feeding on its own. If you get two, then that's the pair typically reinforcing that pair bond. If you see three, then usually he reckons, you know, it's not in a scientific journal, but as I said, he's, he's a pretty eccentric, uh, eccentric fellow. You see three, it's usually the parents plus a female chick flying. And if you get four, that's usually a potential suitor trying to charm the female chick away from the two parents. And um, you do often see twos, threes and fours as you approach landfall in these like beautiful swooping acrobatic flights. Yeah, I, I love the idea of that. I don't know how much truth is in it, but it's certainly, it's a good story. I've definitely told that story to many passengers yeah, before. Too, so <laughs> there's a few people out there who feel that that's, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that stories like that, you know, sometimes they, they might not be true, but often there's, there's so little research done on these animals that, you know, stories like that are a lot of the time a lot of fact in them because there's people observing them and they don't necessarily write it up and do a complex study. But Yeah, absolutely. Really I mean, this guy's been living on like remote islands in the Seychelles for decades as well. So, I mean, he has done a lot of watching birds flying, this guy, and... Uh... Hopefully, hopefully there's some truth in it. I like the story. I love I, the story. I reckon it's true. It's so beautiful when you're there and you're watching them because they do often fly in these different pairs and trios and 
and then the fourth one joins and it it you can spend a long time aside an island just lost in watching their dynamics so it's a lovely story to tell tell us what your favorite interactions or favorite moments have been with these seabirds um so so yeah the island i lived on for two years and we had you know like well over 200,000 nesting pairs of a variety of seabirds. And the lesser noddies are some of my favourites. Noddies get a really hard rap because their genus name is Anus, which is Greek for stupid. And then their common name is Noddy, which is a reference to them being stupid. And then when you watch them, they're not, they're not often like the smartest. So, you, you know, there is some uh, deserved criticism there, but they have a really fun like breeding cycle, breeding season, sort of like how they match make, I guess. And so you could always tell when, when everyone's getting excitable, ready to breed, the female, almost a bit like man's race. The female would lead a chain of males on the flight and the last male, Noddy Standing, is the one that she will mate with that year. And then the female usually goes and, and stands where she wants the nest to be. And they nest in like forks of branches, things like this. So she'll go land somewhere and say, this is where we're going to build the nest. And then the onus is back on the male. He has to find the absolutely perfect foundation block for their nest. And the nests are rubbish. The nests are just like a heap of wet leaves or seaweed on this fork in a branch. Like there's no real like egg cavity in it. They just slop them down and let them dry. So this poor guy has to fly off and scour the beach or, you know, if the island's big enough for like a lot of trees, he can look on the forest floor. And the other males will often like hang around and watch to see if he's successful or not. So he turns up and presents his lady with this beautiful wet leaf. And if she likes it, she'll accept it, put it down. And, you know, that's the start of their nest. And they, they both get nesting material. But if she doesn't like it, she takes it off him and just throws it away. And then all the other males are like, okay, game on. Let's go and find ourselves a wet leaf. Now's our time to step in. I mean, you're stuck on an island for two years, Matt. You, you lose your sanity. But this is exciting stuff. <laughs> and, um, the bachelor. Yeah, the bachelor. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, they, they just build this platform of wet leaves and usually lay a single egg. Sometimes a, uh, they'll lay a couple of eggs. Because the nests aren't very good, there's not really much stability for the chicks once they hatch. And it's certainly on the island I, I worked on, there's, there's a lot of occasions, it's very common for parents coming back to feed the chicks to knock the chicks out of the nest. And you should never anthropomorphize, you know, put human characters to an animal. But it's so funny to watch. They come back, they slap their chick out the nest and they kind of look around like, I really thought I had a baby. What's going on? And it's so comical. And they kind of sit there for a while and, and you know, sometimes we would put the chicks back in the nest or sometimes you find a chick and think, you're the closest nest without a chick I can reach and you put it back. And, you know, there's a good chance we didn't put chicks back in the right nest. But the parents would turn up and be like, oh, I got a baby. This is brilliant. And just start feeding it again. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you can see why they get their slack for being a bit daft, but they're really, really quite charming to watch. Really quite fun to watch. That's for sure. That's an amazing story. It sounds just like babies being mixed up in a maternity ward and the parents don't know. Like, oh, I guess it's a baby. You know, who's to know if it, lo- if it looks like me or not. <laughs> uh, absolutely. That's really how it felt like. I mean, just come back the next, you know, the adult will come back and be like, Oh, had a baby where have you gone and just carry on feeding it and and that kind of things and um, yeah it was it was really really fun to watch really fun to to see these interactions yeah and so do you have any cool other cool facts because I think that is a really cool fact about them like the seaweed being tossed away and 
you know, settling in a tree, but are there any other cool facts you can kind of think of to do with both of these birds? Um, I guess the white tern is, is like almost the exact opposite. So they're really cool in that uh, they make for life, as we mentioned, but they don't make a nest at all. So they, they will lay an egg on a bare branch. Like they, uh, this is even worse parenting. They will look for like a little notch in a branch or, you know, there's a fork in a branch and, and one of the branches has fallen off, just a tiny indent. And they will think that's a perfect place to lay my egg. So they put their egg on this tiny notch in a branch that barely balances. I think it was Attenborough's most recent or maybe Planet Earth where they actually showed this. Um, and often, you know, like the, the skinks, the small lizards and I will climb up and try and scare the parents away because you can just sort of, knock the egg and it falls out and they can scurry down to the ground and eat it but um yeah they they lay their eggs on a bare branch and will obviously sit on the branch and keep the egg balanced on their feet and so it's really intricate swap over when when the parents come and you know another one is going to stay with the egg and the other parent gets to go feed but when the chicks are born they have these giant feet for like a tiny chick i mean we're talking like six to eight centimeters, not, not even that big, maybe like six centimeters. And they have these huge webbed feet, perfect for clinging onto bare branches. And so, yeah, it looks a bit like a, a cartoon or something. This tiny little ball of fluff. So cute. A little bit bigger than a golf ball and just oh these giant feet clinging on. And uh, yeah, they're really cute. So some fun, some fun breeding strategies there. That's for sure. Yeah. It sounds like the white turn is almost the opposite in intelligence or like, I don't know um, how it moves around and um, doesn't look silly compared to the uh, the lesser naughty, you know, transferring the eggs across feet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they, um, you know, like we had tens of thousands of pairs of white turns and they're, they're really fussy parents. If they're, when the chick's big enough, they'll often, they're sort of camo colored to the branch and they'll often wander up and down the branch. But if they fall off, the parents are kind of like, oh, you know, they're really sad. They come back and they look down at the chick, but they, we didn't often get good response if we helped the chick back up onto a branch or whatever. You know, I'm sure there are people watching like, you shouldn't interfere with wildlife, but it was a nature reserve. And in a lot of places, seabird numbers are plummeting due to invasive animals. So um, we were happy to um, assist with the few out of the tens of thousands that we came across. But um, yeah, the white turn chicks would be, uh, sorry, white turn parents would be really distressed if they, if they lost the chick. Yeah, and I think you're right with seabirds. There are so many situations where they do need help, especially like on these islands and so forth that have been colonized by rats and other animals after, you know, sailors went around that, yeah, you do need to give them a helping hand or else a lot of them would have would have disappeared already, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the island I managed in the Seychelles was, there's like 115 islands in the Seychelles and the inner islands are relatively close. And there are good populations of seabirds because there are maybe five or six islands that are rats, cats, you know, um, invasive animal free. Owl, barn, barn owls. owls. Yeah, barn owls were a great idea that the British gave to the Seychelles to try and kill the rats. And the barn owls thought, oh, wait, seabirds are way easier to eat than rats. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, on these like havens they've got where, where there are hundreds of thousands of nesting birds and we had, we had like a very basic footpath system that covered maybe a third of the island. So if there was a, you know, a bird or, or an animal that we could help on that third, then, then often we'd help. And then the other two thirds was pretty wild and, you know, got left to, to do its own thing, apart from like regular monitoring to make sure there were no, no unwanted visitors sneaking onto the island. Well, I have a fact about uh, terns. 
it's not as exciting as any of yours, but it's kind of comical is that a group of them is called a U. So like they're a U of turns, I believe. That's, I did not know I that. And that's know brilliant. That that's, it doesn't, doesn't feel appropriate enough. <laughs> a U of turns. It's a good joke though. It's brilliant. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I just got the joke. You turn. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? U turns. A U of turns. Yeah. Oh my God. That yeah. is so funny. Anytime I'm going to say I need to chuck a Yui, I'll be thinking there have been a flock of turns in flight as I go around the corner. Yeah. I guess it, it does relate, like, it does relate well more so to noddies. They often feed in, like, big groups. And just like a school of fish changes direction, you'll have, like, a big flock of noddies feeding on the surface. And then if the fish move, like, you get this huge flock just you know, bank away to wherever the fish have moved to. So that would be really appropriate. Yeah, that's, I can that's, see that. That was good. I'm happy that that got caught on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, good uh, fact there, Matt. Thank you. No worries. Glad I could add a little bit of knowledge. <laughs> uh, definitely. So if people want to go and see lesser noddies or white turns, uh, either like, you know, just from the shore or on an island or what are the options and what are the best ways to um, be able to view them or take a photo of them or just bird watch them? Yeah, like there's, we've got loads of great islands around Australia. I guess probably the most easily accessible you're going to find towards the Barrier Reef, places like, you know, Lady Elliot Island um, and, and that collection that have got Orpheus and Heron, places like that that have got, you know, established tourism. You can go and wildlife is right there. You know, the, the resorts and the hotels are built to really include the wildlife and, and not be intrusive. So that's that's great. And a lot of these seabirds are relatively unafraid of people. You know, we they're so used to it and so used to having no intrusion in their life from people wandering past that, you know, like a lot of times an iPhone or your, your smartphone will do the job. If you are out on a, a birding trip out to sea, you know, like the Kimberley, the Lassipede Islands, places like that that are a bit harder to get to, they're phenomenal and, and a good pair of binoculars is, is always really helpful. And I guess in terms of photography, it, it kind of depends your interest and your budget. If you, if you find yourself on one of these beautiful island resorts, then you can pretty much wander up um, at your guide's discretion um, at a safe distance and, and snap away with a smartphone or your camera phone and a simple point and shoot. But if you're after beautiful birds in flight, then you definitely want to be looking at like a, a better setup and a, and, a, and a better sort of telephoto lens. Yeah, and I think that's really important what you just mentioned that um, at the guide's discretion, because because they're so used to humans, some of these birds, you don't want to get right up too close. So listen to the guide and then also think about if you see these birds in a non-guided area, they're probably not as used to humans and they're probably going to want you to stay a long way away, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really, really good point to emphasize. You know, we are so privileged to be able to visit these wild places to see these like beautiful animals be it you know you're snorkeling or you're swimming with a whale shark or you're you know seeing seabirds and it, it is really important to give them space because it would have taken a long time for the birds to get used to all the human activity and resettle and decide that they're actually happy nesting there and you know sometimes it's really hard to tell if a white tern is sat on an egg or not and you don't want to go there and then startle the bird. And that's a huge amount of energy and time they've spent creating the egg and, and, and looking after it. So yeah, definitely always good to listen 
to if your guide or just give a safe distance, you know, at least a couple of meters away from them. It's plenty close enough. You can see brilliantly. You can, you know, smartphones have got such good cameras these days. You can get a great shot and you can leave the wildlife in peace. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. So yeah. <laughs> like, thank you for being on, but I want to first off, tell us a little bit about sun butter. Cause it is a, this isn't a sponsored thing or anything. This is just an ocean product that is saving so much marine life or has the potential to save so much marine life. And then tell us where we can see your work or photography or anything like that. Yeah. So um, Sunbutter, Sunbutter Skincare is the social media handle um, and sunbutter.com.au. And Sunbutter is Australia's first plastic packaging free sunscreen. So we founded it a few, maybe three or four years ago and then launched the product last June. And it's SPF 50 and really importantly, it's reef safe. So there's a lot of research showing that common sunscreen and other cosmetic chemicals are actually harming marine environments. Obviously, a lot of research is done on coral reefs because they're really you know, popular for tourism. But more and more research has been done on temperate waters and seagrass meadows and kelp forests like our own beautiful Port Phillip and Western Port Bay area and showing the harmful impacts of uh, sunscreen chemicals and those. So, we worked as wildlife guys. We work as wildlife guys in the tropics. You know, you spend all day outside pointing out amazing birds and uh, wildlife people. We just couldn't find a sunscreen that sort of matched our ethical and environmental considerations. So Sash got in the kitchen and started making us a formula. And, the alchemist. Yeah, and friends loved it and strangers loved it. And then we wanted to make sure it got that SPF rating. So um, we now work through a pharmaceutical partner to um, get it fully ticked and approved. Yes, yeah, we're super proud of the products. Vegan, it's cruelty free, it's reef safe, and it's packaged in really easy to recycle or repurpose screw top tins. And where can you get it? I guess head to the website, which is sunbutter.com.au, and you can just drop directly there with free shipping Australia wide on two tins or more, and we ship worldwide as well. And there's also a store finder, so you can jump on the website and look for the full stockist list. There's like three or four hundred stores around the country now stocking it so hopefully there's one close to whoever's looking for it it's also oh, we're also carbon neutral as a business so if there are international listers all the um, carbon emissions are offset on our shipping and our operations so they don't have to worry about that sort of things yeah and if you want to check out what we've been able to do in a year we've got a little impact statement on the landing page of our website sunbutter.com.au showing what we've been able to achieve in just a year of business which includes diverting over two tons of chemical based formulas sunscreen from going into the ocean by providing our product so that's a really cool achievement to have in yeah first year of business well thank you very much and you two are going to be staying around for our next episode but for now thanks for being on absolute pleasure man thanks so much for having us Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram, Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography, and my webpage, mtunderwatermedia.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Podcast, or visit our Instagram, which is Creatures one word, underscore, podcast. Production assistance by George McGrath, and music by Dan Musel, and his super, 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 super cool slide guitar. Also, don't forget to check out Sun Butter, which is helping to save the ocean one sunscreen application at a time. Tune in next time to hear Tom and Sasha again 
Only this time, Sasha's going to be telling us all about the amazing humpback whale. This has been the Secretures Podcast. Over and out.